your blood runs orange and blue. Orange and blue. blue. This, this is the pod, is the for, pod you. for you. You're listening to Orange and Blue Bloods. Hosted by EJ Stewart and Tommy Beer. Let's get to it, New York. A preseason dub is still a win, right? What's up, guys? This is EJ Stewart. You're listening to Orange and Blue Bloods, a New York Knicks podcast, Odyssey WFAN original. We got a great show lined up for today. We'll be talking about the Knicks preseason win over the Boston Celtics with a very special guest. I'll introduce him in just a second, but we'll be talking about this win. We'll talk about what we liked from the game, talked about some of the things we can expect from this team moving forward, and I'll get the forecast for what we're expecting from this next season in just a minute. So make sure you keep it locked here. This is Orange and Blue Bloods, a New York Knicks podcast, Odyssey WF in the region. It's a podcast you can get wherever you get your podcasts, including the free Odyssey app. Make sure you hit the auto download feature on your streaming service. Get these episodes uh, every time we drop. Back in just this. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Joining me today is a man of many talents. He is an NFL writer for CBS Sports. So you're probably thinking, well, what the hell are we doing with the NFL writer? Nope, don't worry. I know this is a basketball podcast and good news for you. He is an absolute NBA junkie. He's written uh, about the NBA for the likes of CBS Sports, ESPN, 538, Grantland, The Ringer, Sports Illustrated, GQ, and many, many more. You've probably seen a lot of his really really awesome breakdowns on the NBA video breakdowns of teams on his Twitter account. Yesterday he announced his latest NBA endeavor, the last night in basketball newsletter, where you can find his coverage on this upcoming NBA season. My guest is Jared Dubin. Jared, Jared, what's up, man? Thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate you coming on. Hey man. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. So I, I got to ask, you know, right off the, off the bat, I saw your, your posts on Twitter slash X, whatever Elon wants to call it today. <laughs> and I saw that you were going to be launching last night in basketball. And it's funny because I, you know, I work as a producer, both on the CBS sports radio and WFN side. And I've had you on plenty of our shows to talk NFL, but I was familiar with your work initially as an NBA guy. So I was really excited to see you have this newsletter coming out that will allow you to kind of break down what's happening in the NBA through your eyes. 
what can readers expect from last night in basketball? Yeah, I appreciate that, man. Thank you for uh, for having me on yet another one of your your shows. It's uh, I know. It's good, to, good to come <laughs> back, talk some basketball this time. You know, as far as what readers can expect, there will be essentially three editions of the newsletter per week. One of them will be a video breakdown, like you just mentioned, where on Fridays I'm going to do a film breakdown using video clips of something that's going on around the league or something that happened in the league, whether it's, you know, a player's performance from a game in that given week or, you know, the way a certain player is playing on the given season or just anything that I've noticed through watching the games, whether that week or that month or throughout the entire year. I've done a few of these before over the years, and I really like doing them because it allows you to really dig into what happens actually on the court which, you know, right. despite the fact that most of what we hear about the NBA is about the drama and whatnot, to me, the, the most interesting thing in basketball is still what actually happens on the court. And that's what I really want to dig into there. Then, you know, twice a week, there will be written posts for the newsletter. One of them is just basically, if you've read my writing, any of the various sites that you mentioned earlier, you'll recognize those kind of posts. Those will be going up on Tuesdays. And then at some point, during the week, I will have sort of like a notes column of three things I noticed on League Pass during the previous week. And it's just going to be, I know a lot of people like to follow the NBA, but don't necessarily have time to right. watch every game or to watch every team. And it'll just be things that I noticed and wrote down in my notes during that week in the games that were not on national TV about the teams that, you know, aren't as heavily covered as you might see of, you know, everybody that's on ESPN or TNT in a given week. I got to ask, I mean, you know, I'm someone who's been a, a loyal league pass subscriber pretty much since my teenage years. I'm now 32. Um, of course, it's my parents. because I didn't have a cable subscription, but uh, before <laughs> that, and then now later on in life, still a, a, a passionate league pass subscriber. We are in a weird time in the NBA where there's so much complaining about the NBA regular season. It's one thing I've talked about a lot on this podcast and it's interesting to me because like as someone who loves basketball and loves the nba i don't find as much of the concern about the nba regular season as maybe some of the other larger fan bases will, will, will say what is your league pass um diet like and do you see like a a big shift in like how regular season basketball is played over the last several years yeah i think there has been a shift but i also don't think it's as much of an issue as it's made out to be. This is something that I talk about with, you know, other basketball writers and friends a lot, which is that like, if there's a game where, you know, multiple players are missing and it's like, oh, well, you know, we can't watch this game anymore because these guys are out. My thing is watch a different game, you know, right. like there, there are good games on for the most part, pretty much every night. And if you find the game where, the teams are playing their real guys or their teams that are aesthetically pleasing to watch. You can always find good basketball to watch on any given night of the NBA season, especially those days where there are, you know, 12, 13 games on. There's never going to be one of those nights where it's like there's just nothing to watch. Obviously, not everybody is a League Pass subscriber and not everybody right. watches basketball for the entire league. A lot of people, I would say most people just try to follow their team. And there are times where, you know, you might have a game where, you know, the star on your team is out or the stars on the other teamers are out and it's difficult on that given night. And that, 
you know, it sucks. I, I understand those concerns for people that are fans of the entire league or just want to follow the entire league. There are always going to be good games on. And if you subscribe to League Pass, you're always going to be able to find them. And for me, I try to do two games a night every night. And I used to map out which games I was going to watch well in advance. But yeah. given the the increased prevalence of those rest days and you know minor injury days in recent years, it's been more of a, a wing it type of situation. But I do <laughs> keep track of uh, of which games I've watched so I can see like, hey, you know, I haven't watched the the Hornets in a while. I should try to watch a Hornets game soon or something like that. And I really think that it's 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 to a benefit to the, for the fans and the people who who follow your work because someone like me again, I'm I'm you know doing Knicks podcast. I'm watching every Knicks game. You know, the Knicks play at seven thirty. You know, I it's funny I had a I had a conversation with uh, my good buddy Andrew Perloff on at CBS Sports Radio, and like you know he was asking me about. Uh, I think the Kings or somebody and he or, or one of these teams. Oh, the Nuggets. And he was like, you know, like, you know, you follow the Knicks so much. How, how often are you actually able to watch the Nuggets? I'm like, surprisingly a lot because like the yeah. Knicks, I'm watching a full game from seven o'clock to 10. And then really I watch a lot of Western, Western Conference teams because I actually end up, end up getting to watch a lot of these Eastern Conference teams if they're not playing against the New York Knicks. So uh, one thing I can say is, is there may not be, you know, load management, uh, there is load management in the league, but not load management for the likes of you or the likes of me, the likes of the people <laughs> who are following this league on a, on a day-to-day basis. This is uh, Jared Dubin, uh, NBA writer, uh, recently launched in the Last Night in Basketball newsletter. I have one more question about the season before we get into the Knicks. Um, of course, there are always – I think you do a really great job of following trends that are happening from an X and O standpoint in terms of what teams are doing or what the league is doing, how things are shifting. I thought I saw an interesting conversation by J.J. Redick on the Old Man 3 pod where he talked about he thought that offensive rebound is going to become uh, an increased thing in the NBA. And maybe that's something that the Knicks uh, may have something to do with, given their uh, prowess in the offensive class and how that impacted their offensive rating. Uh, is there an NBA trend you're, ele- you're excited to see uh, or follow heading into this season that maybe you saw last season or maybe a trend you saw bubbling up that maybe wasn't so prevalent that you expect to kind of see in a much more bolder sense this year? Yeah, I want to see how defenses fight back against the offensive explosion, obviously, that we've had over the last decade or so. One of the things that, you know, I I cover the NFL also, like you mentioned, and one of the things that's had a pretty significant impact on the NFL over the last couple of years is the increase of teams playing like these two high shell coverages to take away deep passes because Mm -hmm. they've, they've... decided that explosive plays are really what they don't want to give up. And they would rather teams, you know, check down or run the ball to try to make them essentially run more plays to score. And one of the things that I wrote about last year at 538 was what I think is sort of the NBA version of that, which is making teams use more of the shot clock to score where shots earlier in the shot clock tend to carry a higher expected value because they tend to not be as well contested. And because if you take a shot with 18 seconds on the shot clock, it's probably a pretty good shot because if it wasn't, you know, you still have 18 seconds left to get a better one. So generally as the shot clock winds down, it's better for the defense and worse for the offense. And one of the things that teams did more often last year was applying pressure in the backcourt to force their opponents to take more time, bringing the ball up the court. And the, the deeper in the backcourt you pressure, the more time it forces opponents to waste and thus the the fewer points 
per possession, they're probably going to score in the half court. And one of the guys that I focused on in that story was, was Deuce McBride from the Knicks. And I talked to him about it and I talked to, you know, guys like Javon Carter and Davion Mitchell and Drew Holiday and a bunch of different coaches around the league about why that doesn't, doesn't work and how often you can do it and things like that. And I'm curious to see if more teams start experimenting with that or what other ways they try to get opponents to waste more time in the shot clock. It's very fascinating because as soon as you mentioned the, the shot clock and the picking up 94 feet, the first guy I thought about was Deuce McBride. And yeah. it seems like anytime he's inserted in the game, that is essentially his role. And to see that uh, be connected to perhaps extending the shot clock or at least extending the time a team has using the shot clock, I think is very fascinating. And I saw it, I thought, as I literally talked about the last episode with Christian Winfield, the Miami Heat and what you saw and how they guarded Jalen Brunson. Um, you saw a guy, Caleb Martin, six foot seven, six foot eight, very athletic. He was guarding Jalen Brunson all 94 feet and and how that took the Knicks offense at times out of whack. Now, Brunson was still outstanding. I think it showed just how electric and just how how great he was during that postseason that he still played so well. But, yes, that is definitely something you are seeing. I think that is interesting to talk about how that relates to teams wanting to see opponents use more of the shot clock in order to get shots off. Talking to Jared Dubin, longtime NBA writer. So I want to talk about this Knicks game. So we had the Knicks get their first taste of preseason action last night, notching a win over the Boston Celtics at Madison Square Garden, 114-107. The Seeds were sitting essentially their entire uh, rotation or definitely their entire starting lineup. So no Drew Holiday, no Chris Porzingis, the two new guys. Uh, we didn't see any Jason Tatum, no Jalen Brown, no Al Horford. That did not stop, stop Tom Thibodeau from playing his guys and playing his usual starters. So it was the same suspects you saw from last season. You had Brunson, Grimes. There was confusion about whether or not Grimes was going to start. There was, a, I guess, an error when the first starting lineup went out. People thought it was going to be IQ. Grimes did start last night. For those who did not watch the game and maybe saw something on Twitter saying he didn't. It was Jalen Brunson and Grimes, RJ at the three. You had Randall at the four and Mitchell Robinson at the five. Now, Brunson was dazzling in the six minutes he played, and it was only six minutes in the first quarter. He had 10 points. Shot four for five uh, from the field. Mitchell Robinson, I thought, also was impressive. He had 10 points, seven rebounds, three blocks in 23 minutes. Um, uh, this game, though, of course, first preseason game, you're going to see a lot of action from these uh, young guys, a lot of action from these reserves. So, Manuel Quickly, who, of course, was a six-man of the year runner-up last season, he scored a game-high 21 points in 23 minutes. Evan Fournier, a guy who essentially was uh, ostracized from the team last season, he got plenty of second-half burn. He scored 11 points in 21 minutes. Boston's Peyton Pritchard tied Emmanuel Quickly's game high with 21 in the losing effort. So these teams will square off again later in the preseason. They have a matchup uh, a week from today. We're recording this podcast Tuesday, October 10th, so October 17th. These teams will battle again. And then they'll also, of course, start the season against each other at Madison Square Garden in just about two weeks' time. So Brunson didn't play all that long. But the time he played was impressive. Seeing as, as you follow this league and follow the other guards in this league, and, and, and I'm sure you followed a lot of what he did, how confident are you that last season was not a fluke? And is there a higher ceiling you think he can reach uh, coming into uh, this season? I would say I'm extremely confident that it was not a fluke. I've been higher on Brunson than general consensus since the draft. Um, you know, you can go back and – check my Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it to see that. And I was, you know, advocate for him to start in Dallas during that time as well. And I thought he was a really good fit playing next to, to Luka Doncic. And then, you know, the various starters that they've had in there in recent years, 
And it's it's rare to see someone scale up in usage the way Brunson did last year and still remain extremely efficient and have arguably mm-hmm. the most efficient season of his career. I think once you show you can do that for, for a full season, it's extremely unlikely for that to be just a fluke and for that guy to, you know, crater and not be able to to handle it. I think the question right. is more about whether they can put him in better positions because a lot of what he did last year was succeeding despite disadvantageous situations. Like when I wrote about the the Brunson signing at 538 last summer, one of the things I said was, you know, Brunson is basically a prototype Tibbs point guard given how well he runs the pick and roll and and how tough he is and and like he obviously knows Tibbs for his entire life essentially, right. which is something that Tibbs values a lot, but sort of expressed a little bit of skepticism of him keeping up his efficiency because the Knicks weren't going to be able to go spread on as many pick and rolls and they didn't have very good shooting. And that actually bore out in the way Brunson played last year. There wasn't as many spread pick and rolls and they didn't have very good shooting. So his shots were more well contested than ever before in his career. He just made them anyway. You know, like he he was just good (laughs) enough to be able to make those shots at basically the same rate as he did before, despite having to take tougher shots. What I want to see is for them to put him in better position to succeed with better spacing and with more spreading the court around him rather than forcing him to operate in those tight spaces so that he has a little bit of an easier time getting to his looks. If they can do that, then I think that there is a little bit more of a ceiling, like you mentioned. If it's more of the same with him having to you know, take tough contested floaters and having to operate in tight spaces more often, then I don't know how much more of a ceiling there is because he was already overperforming what he quote-unquote should have done on the type of looks that he got last year. How much of that do you think is on Tibbs in terms of scheme and how much of that is 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 really just the, the how the roster is constructed? Now, they will get to Dante DiVincenzo in a second. They added Dante DiVincenzo. They sent Obi Toppin out. You would think that that's an improvement in terms of shooting. Um, do you feel like the Knicks can do things to get Brunson in more space this season? Or do you feel like a lot of it's going to depend on them running these same sets and just hoping that there's a better shooting on the outside so teams have to respect it more? Yeah, so to take the questions one at a time, um, I I think that some of it is on Tibbs' offense, some of it is on the roster construction, and some of it is on the way Tibbs structures the rotation. I've not been a very big fan of Tibbs' offense throughout his career. I think it's largely unimaginative, and I think even though it was very efficient last year, it it was pretty unimaginative last year too. It was high pick and roll to set up an – isolation for Brunson or Randall for the most part. That is the offense and that has been Tibbs's offense for pretty much his entire career. And when the guys that you're setting up those one-on-ones for play well and shoot well, it can work really, really well as we saw last year. Getting one-on-ones or advantages for your best players is a lot of what teams try to do offensively. And when they're players as good as Brunson and Randall were last year, it can work extremely effectively. Some of it, like I said, is the, is the roster construction because when it's a high pick and roll, if that pick and roll is with Mitchell Robinson or Isaiah Hortenstein, you're going to have someone diving down through the lane towards the rim, and Brunson does his best work when moving towards the rim. And if it's mm-hmm. a pick and roll with Julius Randle, then you're going to have Robinson or Hartenstein or Jericho Sims hanging out in a dunker spot, which inevitably is going to have you know another defender near the paint 
which right. again, Brunson does his best work in the paint. And then some of it, I think, is the way Tibbs structures the rotation where Brunson doesn't spend a lot of time playing without Randall. So he's not going to spend as much time playing in the smaller lineups that are mm-hmm. afforded to somebody like Emmanuel quickly. And he's not going to spend as much time running the court as you know he would if he were playing more often with the bench unit. Um, I think if if the Knicks separate Brunson and Randall in the rotation a little bit more, then you might see him in a little bit more of those spread situations. But I do think there is some merit, at least, to having your best players on the court together as often as possible. And obviously the Knicks, offensively at least, were really, really good with those two guys on the court together last year. And there, there's there's merit to not separating them as especially given how well the bench played last year. And it's interesting you talk about the rotations because one thing I saw last night, and you don't know if it's because Brunson was clearly on this five to six minute pitch count, or if it was something that they were forecasting for the season. But one thing we've seen, as you mentioned, yes, Brunson and Randall play most of the first quarter together, sometimes the entire first quarter, and they come out essentially together. RJ has been kind of pegged as the starter who plays with the reserves in a nine man rotation. Last night, we saw Brunson come out first and RJ and Randall stayed in. Now, we never saw Brunson go back in with that second unit. And there were some weird things because Josh Hart, as I didn't mention, he did not play in this game. So we had a lot of Jericho Sims at the four. It was not pretty for those wondering what that looked like. Um, but, like, I, I kind of wondered if, if perhaps that was maybe them foreshadowing, hey, we're going to try maybe to do some of that. Because, as you mentioned, it's something that a lot of Knicks fans have complained about a ton, that there is no staggering of Randall and Brunson's minutes. And look, the bench unit has been a strength of the Knicks, especially uh, for most of the types of time, especially after Josh Hart came over in the trade. But I do think there's a good point that you make about how that could actually end up uh, hurting, uh, maybe not allowing Brunson to kind of occupy and, and create in the spaces that make him most efficient. Yeah. I mean, I would be pretty surprised if Tibbs changed the rotation when they mm-hmm. essentially swapped out, only one piece of the nine man rotation. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's much more likely that they were like, Brunson's only going to play six minutes tonight. So he'll be the guy that comes out at the six minute mark. But, you know, if they do decide they're going to stagger, that would be a pretty significant change for Tibbs. And uh, I'd be very interested to see how that works out, especially because they are small off the bench because the, the one change they made in the rotation was going from, Obi Toppin to Dante DiVincenzo, which means mm-hmm. they're they're kind of locking themselves into at least some small ball, particularly when the bench units are out there, unless they're going back to a 10-man rotation and Jericho Sims is getting the backup four minutes, which I don't think is in the cards most likely. But I do think if there's ever anybody from the nine-man rotation that's out, I think the most likely scenario, unless the player that's out is Quickly or Brunson, then you would see Deuce. I think the most likely scenario would be Tibbs going back to Sims as a backup four playing with Hartenstein, because even though that unit was not very good together, I think people that have read uh, Fred Katz at The Athletic know that Tibbs likes that group no matter what and is uh, (laughs) going to value the rim protection over anything else when making changes to the rotation. Yeah, and that's unfortunate. And it's not anything to do with Jericho Sims. I love Jericho Sims, and I think that 
if Hartenstein wasn't here, he'd be a fine backup five man. But we we've just never seen that unit work. <laughs> I mean, and I've tried to give it a chance, and I've I've wished on it and hoped that because I'd like to see Jericho Sims get some more time. But in this NBA, it, I honestly watching it, especially watching it last night, I was actually getting some really bad like first year Derek Fisher running the triangle vibes watching. <laughs> Hartenstein and Sims. It felt like I was watching Lance Thomas and, and uh, Jason Smith playing together again. It just, the spacing was so terrible. The Knicks created advantages and several different chance opportunities, and they just couldn't take advantage because they were throwing the ball in the corner to a guy who just was no threat to shoot or no threat to do anything. He had several open looks, and then he's going right into dribble handoffs because there's nothing he can do 25 feet away from the basket. So um, I, I agree. I think that they're going to stick with the nine men that won't include Jericho. But if there is an injury, I think that there's a chance we end up seeing those lineups and Tibbs is going to just hold on for dear life and hope that they don't get killed when those guys play together. But I'm not all that excited about it. Emmanuel quickly was really great last night as well. Turnovers weren't that great. And he took a little while to get his shot going. Once he got going, he was phenomenal in the second half. Um, And he had a career year last season. Why is he so impactful to what the Knicks do in their success? So you mentioned earlier about what the Heat did to Brunson in that series in terms of pressuring him up and down the court. It is so valuable when you have another guy on the court that can not just bring the ball up, but actually run the offense. And you can Mm -hmm. try different ways to get Brunson the ball. And he doesn't have to expend all of his energy trying to get the ball up the court and get past players that, you know, are bigger and at times more physical than him. That to me is the biggest thing that quickly brings in terms of the Knicks being able to sort of get over the hump in the playoffs. And that's why I was so disappointed that basically him playing a poor first half in game one of the Cleveland series when Brunson got an immediate foul trouble resulted in him somehow, despite being the sixth man of the year runner up, being the guy that got his minutes cut through the rest mm-hmm. of the postseason. It really did not make sense to me at all, especially mm-hmm. given that I think he's also their best team defense player. He is the guy that's always in the right spot. He's always pre-rotating to the next guy to cut off the shot. We saw it throughout the season, how good he is on the ball too, but off ball defense, he's probably their best guy at doing that. And despite his size, he's able to hang in pretty much any matchup that you give him. You're like, you're not going to give him the big wing types. You're not putting him on KD or LeBron, but you know, any guard that you put him on, he's going to do a good job for the most part on the ball and off the ball. And between those two things, the defense that he brings and the the way that the the defense has consistently been better with him on the court throughout his entire career. And then last year you saw in the, the Brunson quickly minutes, the offense was just as good as it was in the Brunson only minutes, but the defense was so much better his ball handling and ability to be a supplementary playmaker. And then in the post December, whenever they made the rotation change, he shot, you know, 38, 39% from three, the rest of the year sort of rediscovered his jumper. If you bring all of those things together, it's just such a valuable player. And I feel like he's one of those guys that really, you know, because he's so, you know, loosey goosey and because he's so in some way kind of random and how he attacks, I think it adds a level of unpredictability to the offense that I think actually helps because I think, as you mentioned, Tibbs runs a pretty predictable, pretty kind of standard 
NBA offense. And you got a guy who's coming in who's not afraid to come off a fast break and just pull up from 30 or, you know, just kind of just look for his own shot at any point in time. Uh, it, it's it's a great benefit. And I, I, yeah. I know, look, I, I've called Emmanuel quickly in Amoeba because I feel like this guy can do anything. He can uh, play on the ball. He can play off the ball. He can spot up. He can play and pick and roll. Like, no, nothing you can do offensively and defensively, as you mentioned, he could pretty much do it all as well. So he's definitely an important player. And it's interesting because, you know, I've been one to be critical of Emmanuel Quickly's playoff performance. I didn't think he played well, particularly offensively. But as you noted, his minutes were cut. And Fred Katz, who you mentioned earlier, did report that, you know, Tibbs essentially lost confidence in him uh, in that postseason run. Even despite how poorly he shot, and some of the poor stuff we saw offensively, he still was net positive in those playoff games. So it's something about Emmanuel quickly that when he's on the floor, the Knicks end up playing well. Um, so so hopefully that he can get back into form and he looked really solid last night. Um a couple of last he was, quick he was still the, their yeah. best defender. Sorry, he was yeah. still their best defender in that Cleveland series, which I think is yes. why the minutes were positive, despite the fact that he didn't shoot well. And, and certainly he didn't really play well. And I think a lot of it stemmed from that that lack of confidence and the minutes being cut basically as soon as he had a, you know, a a poor shooting first half in that game one of the first round. And then obviously he ended up getting hurt in, uh, in the Miami series, you know, he hasn't played well in the playoffs, but the idea that, Mm -hmm. you know, and essentially what, what is it like a 13 game sample of playoff games now or something along those lines is, you know, more indicative of what he is as a player than the three full seasons that he's put together doesn't really pass the smell test to me, but you mm-hmm. do eventually have to play well in the playoffs. So, and knowing Emmanuel quickly, I'm sure he's he's biting at the at the biting at the bit to get enough opportunity uh, to play in this postseason this season. So, uh, a couple quick things on last night before we move on to just the larger picture for this next season. Uh, Mitchell Robinson again was one of the big standouts last night. He looked uh, really it looked like he's in really good shape. I mean, physically. Um, I don't want to say Dwight Howard because that's like you know ungodly, but like he, I mean, he looks strong. A low body looks strong. It was probably the best I feel, feel like I've seen him look physically coming into an NBA season in a long time. There was one season where he was way too heavy and just looked so top heavy early in his career. He was really thin, couldn't really handle his weight down low. He looked great and he was awesome last night. He mentioned three blocks and in the, in the rebounding. Um, one of the things we saw on this play last night was the offensive rebounding prowess. And, and I want to ask you, what do you feel like? Uh, the net impact is of a player like Mitchell Robinson when he's able to have that kind of impact on the offensive glass, despite his struggles at the free throw line. Yeah, I mean, I think the the ideal scenario for, you know, the best impact Mitch can have is what happened in that Cleveland series where he just totally dominated Jared Allen and Evan Mobley on the glass. He is an extremely good rebounder, especially on the offensive end. The defensive end, he can get a little chasey sometimes and let guys, you know, go around him because he doesn't box them out. But on offense, I mean, the dude knows where the ball is going. And a lot of offensive rebounding is just trying for offensive rebounds. And he does yeah. that really, really well. And, you know, there, when there are possessions or stretches of possessions in a game where you're getting a bunch of offensive rebounds in a row, especially when you're a team that is not a particularly good shooting team, creating those extra possessions and winning that battle by either, you know, not turning the ball over, forcing turnovers or winning the rebounding battle is extremely important. And, you know, he's not a good free throw shooter. And I wouldn't be surprised if teams started going hack a Mitch more often 
Or if when he gets an offensive rebound and tries to go back up, they just foul him right away. That's what I would do. But still getting those extra possessions, even if he gets fouled, even if he misses one or two of the free throws, you're that much closer to getting in the bonus. And if you get fouled often enough, then all of a sudden the guys that are that are good free throw shooters get to the line more often. To me, the he's, he definitely has to improve the free throw shooting. He's got to find a way to make an impact on offense outside of just the offensive rebounding and rolling to the rim. And then he needs to be more composed defensively, not right. going, you know, as as often for the block shots. He's gotten better at it. He's gotten better at the foul issues, but there are still guys that give him trouble. And there are still, you know, like Domas Sabonis, he is never going to succeed against Domas Sabonis. It's, it's because ridiculous. the one thing you have to do against Sabonis, as Kavon Looney showed in the playoffs last year, is not jump. Just don't jump ever. And Mitch, Mitch is always going to struggle with yeah. that. But, you know, there are guards similarly that give him trouble. I think Brunson was a guard that gave him trouble because of the way that he plays with so many upfakes and so many different changes of direction and changes of pace. There are always going to be guys that give him issues like that. But if he can play like he did defensively for the most part last season and he can offensive rebound the way he has, it's it's a valuable player. It's, you know, a, an above average starting center, which is worth – you know, if not the money they gave him, then pretty close to it. And with Mitch, I think there's so much hope that he can kind of reach that defensive ceiling where you look at him as a true uh, defensive anchor. And and he's shown flashes of it. And we know he has the size and athleticism to do it. But I agree. A lot of it is positioning. A lot of it is poise. A lot of it is, um, you know, kind of defensive IQ in, in certain situations. But with Mitch, in some ways, I almost wish he could like watch like prime Tyson Chandler, and I don't know how with Tyson Chandler's you know relationship is with the organization. They could sit him down and watch some film because, like you mentioned, not going for all the blocks. And I think people forget like Tyson Chandler, one fest player of the year. He was not a guy averaging two or three blocks a game. Um, he was not a guy that was calling and trying to just throw everything, but he knew when to go for those blocks. He knew when to stand tall. He knew when to use verticality. And I think if Mitch is able to to do that, I feel like, you know, the sky's the limit for, for how he could be defensively. And as you mentioned, you're right. He could end up being an above average center if he can do all those things. Uh, but the, the it was for someone who, like, you mentioned the bonus, and it just, like, it was like PTSD because <laughs> that game in Sacramento last year, you know, which was one of the worst first halves that the Knicks played all season, and Bronson got hurt earlier in that game. And Mitch had pretty much very few issues with the fouls. And that was the game where he saw the bonus, and it was like he was—it was one. It made the worst game he played all season. And and you're right; that's the kind of player that's going to consistently give him trouble. Yeah, I mean, anybody that is not trying to beat him at the rim, but instead letting him beat himself, is the the kind of guy that's that's going to give him trouble on occasion. And you know, like everybody in the league has guys that give them trouble. Like there are, you know. RJ, when he goes against the Celtics and Robert Williams has a lot of issues because Robert Williams, he tries to go through him and he tries to finish over him. And that's just not going to work because RJ on the drive is like a power player and not, you know, a real crafty guy, which is kind of what you have to do to get, you know, through or around Robert Williams. And there are Mm -hmm. plenty of big men that you can have success with as a power player and plenty of wings that when you catch and you go by them on the move and you dig your shoulder in, you can create separation and put up that little, you know, lefty touch shot or that little, you know, scoop around the big man uh, layup that he goes to a lot. There are 
plenty of teams that he can have success with. Everybody has guys they struggle with. And for Mitch, like Tyson Chandler, you mentioned, that's like the platonic ideal of what you would want to see from him. Or even just Brooke Lopez defensively. Mm. Just watch how Brooke sits back and is still able to spring up to not just contest shots, but block shots, you know? But he's not overly chasing them. There are guys that give him trouble. Like, obviously, Luca gives everybody trouble, but he has especially had Brooke Lopez in hell over the last few years. And that's going to happen every once in a while. But if you're composed enough, you can still get your blocks and you can affect more of the court despite hanging back the way Brooke does and the way Mitch does. Jared Dubin is my guest today. He has the last night in basketball newsletter. Make sure you guys check it out. I want to talk about the Knicks coming into this season. So many fans are optimistic about the direction of the organization. Uh, The team made the playoffs two out of the last three years under head coach Tom Thibodeau. Last season won a playoff series for the first time since 2013. As we mentioned, he returned most of their roster despite the the departure of Obi Toppin, Dante DiVincenzo. He adds to the mix. He's now going to hope to provide shooting and versatility in the backcourt. Randall's coming off an All-NBA selection, R.J. Barrett. Had a really successful playoff run and a bronze medal one at the at the FIBA World Cup. Uh, how do you see the Knicks stacking up in the East? I saw that the the NBA had their GM rankings or their GM poll come out uh, today on Tuesday, and the Knicks came in fifth in that polling. Uh, where do you see the Knicks stacking up with the rest of these? Yeah, I mean, I think Boston and Milwaukee are a clear cut above the other teams in the East. And then, you know, I saw that poll. It's like the Knicks votes were essentially split between like third, fourth and fifth. And Mm -hmm. I think that sounds about right. Like them, you know, Philly, Miami. um, I can't remember who else. Cleveland. Cleveland. And then I think Atlanta was in seventh. But those those next four teams from three to six. You know, Philly, Miami, New York, and Cleveland, those seem like the right teams to be in that mix. And I can see them finishing in, you know, pretty much any order, barring, you know, injuries affecting someone. And the Knicks might be a little bit more susceptible to bad injury luck than other teams because they had such good injury luck last year in terms of the guys in their rotation, for the most part, staying really healthy until pretty much like the end of the year when Randall hurt his ankle and Brunson was having a little bit of issues and then quickly gets hurt in the playoffs. But for the most part, they stayed really healthy last year. And obviously we know that they like to load minutes onto their top guys and they, they've been able to stay healthy despite that, but that doesn't mean it's going to keep happening that way. But to me, somewhere between three and six seems right. You know, if everything goes absolutely right and things go a little bit wrong for, you know, Cleveland or Miami or Philly, I could see them getting that three spot. And if everything not everything goes wrong, but if things don't go perfectly and one of those teams has, you know, a, a really good year, I could see them finishing sixth and still not being like a disappointing team, you know, still finishing in, you know, mid to high forties and wins or something like that. And because the East is, you know, pretty deep in terms of that top six group, you can be, the Knicks can be just as good as they were last year, but not get that, you know, three or four seed. Yeah, I mean, we saw the eighth seed last year, Miami upset Milwaukee in the first round and, of course, go to the NBA Finals. So um, the Eastern Conference does have a lot of quality teams, especially that top with Boston and Milwaukee. Do you feel like there is any reasonable shot for the Knicks uh, to, to to find a way to to take a step up next season? You know, they, they won one playoff series last year. They took the Miami Heat to six games. 
uh, with Boston and Miami, it, it, a lot of people feel like they're just on a collision course for the Eastern Conference Finals. But is there any way the Knicks or anybody else you could see maybe taking a step up and maybe knocking those teams off once we get to the playoffs? Yeah, I mean, for the Knicks, it's going to have to come through internal improvement, whether that's, you know, it's it's basically does R.J. Barrett, Quentin Grimes, or Emmanuel quickly take like a really significant step forward and become like a close to all-star caliber player is the way that that happens. Um, right. I'm not sure given the way the team is structured and given the way the opportunities are doled out that that is necessarily in the cards in terms of them like leaping up to be as good as Milwaukee or Boston. They have played Boston well over the last yes. couple of years, but obviously Boston is now a significantly different team with Drew Holiday and Kristaps Porzingis in there instead of, you know, Marcus Smart, Grant Williams, and Robert Williams. So I'm going to be interested to see how they play. Milwaukee is a team that is, like, constructed to beat the Knicks because they're like, it's like, what if the Knicks, but everybody was 10% better? Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's been a really tough matchup for them. Particularly, they just don't have anybody who has anything for Giannis. Not that there are many teams that do, but... They are low on big wings, and their best matchup for Giannis is probably Julius Randle, and he's probably the worst defender in the rotation. So that's just not a good matchup for them. Yeah, it's like last season when we saw the playoffs unfold, I kept saying pretty much since we saw the the seedings shake out that I, I was afraid of nobody except Milwaukee. I, I felt <laughs> if the Knicks played the Bucks. They, it might be a five-game gentleman sweep. It might be a sweep. I was very concerned about a Bucks matchup because, as you mentioned, they, they, they just match up so poorly with them because of Giannis. And like you said, the way the starting lineup is kind of – and the rotation kind of set up, they just have much more talent in the spots where the Knicks are supposed to be strong. And now you add Damian Lillard to this mix, it, it definitely uh, makes them a tough team. Now, to yeah, I think one thing with uh, yeah, go ahead. sorry, I think one thing with yeah. that Milwaukee matchup now, though, one of the big things that I thought Milwaukee had over them last year was they could that they could throw Drew Holiday or Javon Carter at Jalen Brunson, and That's neither true. of those guys is on the team anymore, and they don't really have a, you know, a a, a lockdown point guard defender like they did. Yeah, point of attack. Yeah, yeah. So that could change things a little bit. I do think the the defensive matchup is still really bad for the Knicks in that matchup, though, and might be even worse given you know Dame's ability to to pull up on pick and rolls and how much space you might get in those situations. Yeah, Knicks love playing drop like a lot of teams do, but they played a lot, so I don't know what you're doing on Giannis, Giannis and, and Dame pick and roll when Dame's pulling up from 35 feet out. So yeah, uh, or even go. Giannis and Brook Lopez, which is probably more likely to be a pick and pop, like right. If you're not, if you're giving Dame the space, he's pulling, and if you're not, then Lopez is wide open, and your big man is out of the paint. You know, yes. so it's uh, it's very difficult for them to deal with that type of type of attack. Yeah, I saw way too much film of Mitchell Robinson trying his best running late at a big man who's got a wide open look. So uh, hoping we don't see a team like Milwaukee in the postseason this year. Uh, but Tibbs uh, has seen a lot of success here as Nick's head coach, despite a lot of the criticisms you seem to share, many of the same criticisms I've had of him, how do you assess the job he's done overall in New York? I think he's basically been exactly what I thought he would be, which is he's a guy that is going to get all of the low-hanging fruit. 
the team is going to play hard every single night. That is not true for every team in the league. And when you do that, you're going to steal wins that you maybe shouldn't have gotten through your, your effort and your execution. He's going to have a team that does not turn the ball over very often, that gets to the line a good amount, and that mostly wins the rebounding battle. Those are all things that can have you outperform your talent level in the regular season. But I do think tactically in the postseason, he is going to be overmatched and unwilling for the most part to make adjustments. That's just who he has always been. And it's been that way for a really long time. And it's unlikely to change at any time soon. If there's one overriding thing about Tibbs, it's that he's going to do things his way come hell or high water. And there are a lot of times that that's going to work, but there are a lot of times, especially when you get into the postseason with teams that are willing to make significant adjustments against you. If you go against the heat and Eric Spolstra, he's going to, you know, keep tinkering until he finds the thing that unlocks what they need to unlock against you. And there are times that Tibbs is is frankly just going to be a liability uh, in the postseason. And there are times where, his stubbornness with the way he constructs the rotation or which guys he has to have on the court at a given time are going to be a liability. And you knew what you were getting when you hired him and when you essentially didn't really run a coaching search before landing on him because Leon Rose knew who he was hiring pretty much as soon as he got the job. And I wouldn't be surprised if that was part of the pitch. Like, Mm -hmm. you know what you're going to get. It's going to be, pretty good it's gonna be it's just the ceiling i think is a little bit capped and that's okay to a certain extent because they're trying to reestablish their competence but i do think if they want to you know reach a higher ceiling it it's it's not necessarily in the cards with tibbs unless you get him an offensive coordinator which is something that i've been advocating for for years going back to his time with the bulls. I'm like, this guy needs like, yeah. you know, he was doc rivers, defensive coordinator. Mike right. D'Antoni would bring along guys as his defensive coordinator, wherever he went, if they got him an offensive coordinator and tried to run things a little bit differently, I might feel differently about that, but he's a, he's a good coach who has strengths and weaknesses just like everybody else. Yeah. And it leads me to one, one quick question here. Do you, do you feel like, you know, there's been this conversation about the Knicks and maybe that or not, maybe I think they, they are trying to eventually get a another superstar in here. Um, if you don't think Brunson superstar, a superstar in here. Do you feel like whoever that guy ends up being, if they do indeed make their way to New York, do you feel like Tibbs is the right man to lead the Knicks forward if that's the case? Because once you get that superstar, name the guy, like the expectations change, like going to the second round of the playoffs and no longer expectation. Now you're talking about winning a championship. You don't know what the roster is. So it's a little bit of a tricky question, but do you feel like Brunson plus a superstar, that's a difference maker with Tibbs coaching. Is that enough for the Knicks to meet the expectations they want? Do you feel like they would then have to then take a serious evaluation at where they are a head coach? Well, I think a lot of it would depend on, you know, a, who that superstar player is and B what they have to give up to get that player and who, and therefore like who is left over with those guys. Like a team is not two guys and a coach, obviously right. you, know, you, need, exactly. you need to surround them with really high level role players and guys, ideally that 
can shoot, defend, or both. Um, and obviously you need, you know, more than one guy that can create off the dribble as well. So if the guy that they bring in is a big man, you really need to have another perimeter player that can create looks, not just for himself, but for other guys too. So most of the answer to your question, I think, comes down to the answers to to those two questions. Gotcha. It's really tough to say, like, would Tibbs be my coach of choice if I was running a team? Probably not. Like, I, I would, I think that at a certain point when you get into the playoffs, being able to find answers offensively is more important than the way he seems to value it. But that doesn't mean it can't happen. You know, like there are coaches that I would not have as the coach of my team that have won NBA titles before. You know, it's right. I wouldn't say that there's a coach or a player that you can't win with. It's about getting the right group of players in there and frankly, getting the right lucky breaks like beyond talent and injuries. Luck is probably the single most important factor in determining who wins the championship every year. So you got to get those things. Jared Dubin, my guest, he's been fantastic throughout this entire episode. I have one last question for you. I know we talked a lot about several Knicks on this team. Uh, maybe outside some of the guys we've mentioned, what player on the Knicks team are you most intrigued to follow this season? For me, it's just the wing group. Like mm. uh, Quentin Grimes, R.J. Barrett, Josh Hart, Dante DiVincenzo, Emmanuel Quickly. Because if you game out the way the minutes are going to work like Randall and Brunson are going to play their, you know, 34, 36 minutes, whatever it is. I would say there's a 99.9% chance that the center minutes are going to be split between Mitch Robinson and Isaiah Hartenstein. That does not leave enough minutes to go around for all of the, the wing guys. And I know quickly is also going to get the backup point guard minutes, but there just aren't that many of them because Brunson's going to play a lot and deservingly. So, so, you know, who steps forward to take the lion's share of those minutes, what they decide they're going to make those decisions based on and who closes games more often than not. That's to me, the thing that is going to determine, you know, the, the way the next season goes. Jared Dubin, he's an NFL writer for CBS Sports, but as you heard, this guy knows his ball. Um, he's written for several places, but you can find some of his latest work and his new uh, basketball letter last night in basketball. Make sure you guys uh, subscribe. Uh, Jared, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. No doubt, no doubt. This has been an episode of Orange and Blue Bloods, a New York Knicks podcast and Odyssey WFN original, a podcast you get wherever you get your podcasts, including the free Odyssey app. Be sure to hit the auto-download feature on your streaming service to get these episodes every time we drop. You can also catch us up on YouTube as well, where we post not just the shorts from this episode, but the full episode on the WFAN YouTube channel. Jared, let's people know where they can find you. Uh, yeah, I'm on uh, Twitter slash X or whatever <laughs> at Dubin 5 And then, like you mentioned, I've got the Last Night in Basketball newsletter. If you go to lastnightinbasketball.com, you'll be able to find that there. Uh, there's a 30-day free trial running now. You can redeem it now through the first week of the season and uh, see if you like what you read and what you watch and see if you want to subscribe further than that. Absolutely. Make sure you guys check out that uh, newsletter. You know I will be 
find me, EJ underscore Stewart on Twitter, Action EJ on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Thank you guys again so much for checking out Orange and Blue Buds. For Jared, I'm EJ. Thank you guys. Peace.